Support for today's show comes from Locker Room, the best place to talk sports. Make sure to follow me on Locker Room at Jake Reiner, and I'll invite you to chat on my weekly baseball room, uniquely titled Meeting on the Mound. Download Locker Room for free on the Apple App Store today and join the conversation. My next guest is someone who's covered the Dodgers for years and even wrote a New York Times bestselling book about her favorite team called The Best Team Money Can Buy, The Los Angeles Dodgers' Wild Struggle to Build a Baseball Powerhouse. She also wrote for ESPN the magazine for eight seasons and is currently a senior staff writer for The Athletic. We're talking about Molly Knight. Welcome to Meeting on the Mound, Molly. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you about the Dodgers because I feel like we've had a long history of us knowing each other and us yeah. talking about uh, just sort of the the painful era of Dodgers <laughs> baseball that we've been through the past uh, 32 years. So um, first, I kind of want to talk to you about your book because the best team money can buy. I read it when it came out around 2015. And at the time when it came out, obviously your book covers from the end of the McCourt era to the Guggenheim era of ownership. And I just remember feeling, you know, pretty optimistic about uh, the Guggenheim era with Magic Johnson and Stan Kasten and Mark Walter. And but but still feeling that obviously when I got to the end of your book, we had not still not won a World Series because yeah. it covered up through the 2015 season. But now I've, I started to started to I started to read it back and it has a different meaning to me now, knowing <laughs> what was going to come and sort of yeah. I can tell myself my 2015 self like, just wait, their plan <laughs> is going to come to fruition. It's going to work yeah. out. So I kind of want to get your thoughts on 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 your book, what you experienced and you know, does it have a different meaning for you now as well? Yeah, it's, it's been funny actually kind of watching the Mets go through what they're going through now because it's very similar. They had owners in the Wilpons who were famously cash-strapped because of various business deals gone awry and um, like how the McCourts were cash-strapped because of their divorce and other other reasons. And then they were bought by this like big deep pocket savior and it was like oh my gosh now we're just gonna now everything's gonna be fixed and we're gonna we're gonna buy our way we're gonna be able to buy our way out of this mess we're gonna be able to you know fill a championship team immediately and as we know it didn't work out that way it took the dodgers you know eight years um to do that mets owner steve steve cohen is saying he wants to win a championship within three to five years and some people reacted negatively to that but i thought um you actually absolutely should be saying that if you have, if you are willing to spend and you're serious and you want, you aren't going to accept mediocrity. Like there's something wrong with saying that. Of course, um, as you and I know, all, all you can do is get into the playoffs and then hope that your best player doesn't get injured or the other team isn't using electronics to steal signs <laughs> or, you know, various things don't happen. Right. I mean, it's a game of inches. It's, it's pretty brutal. And, um, you know, just in the different years, the Dodgers got bounced thinking about like, you know, in 2015, somebody forgetting to cover third base on something like, you know, a guy going from first to second on a walk and then continuing on to third base, which never happens. And then he scores the winning run on like a sack fly that never should have been scored. And you think about like, I don't know how you spend the money 
to avoid something as fluky and as crazy as that. Um, right. But yeah, you're right. I think I think people have asked me, did this season feel like a real championship because fans weren't there? And the answer is, I mean, it felt like a real championship in that they had to beat the best teams to win it. And that's not easy ever. I believe the Braves and the Rays were the two best teams besides the Dodgers. Um, but of course it was different because fans weren't there. But at the same time, it does feel like all of that drama and all of like that Groundhog Day of them failing and the emotional like a mental block is now gone. So now it just feels like for next year, it's like, well, we're just going to watch them and see if they can win how they do. And it's not going to be like in April when they, if they get out to like a, if they win 22 games in April, it's not going to be like, well, who cares unless they win in October, you know, there's a whole, it kind of like lifted that cloud. So I think it'll be more enjoyable for, for fans, honestly. I, I have to agree because, you know, yes, I, I understood that this championship didn't, feel maybe as good as it as it would have been had we been able to be there and fans in the stands and you know the the players didn't have to wear masks at the end when they were celebrating and we didn't get to see this the champagne celebration in the clubhouse and all of that so yeah I'm but but as a Dodgers fan I know that like me like I just wanted to win one like I just wanted any it didn't matter how it came whatever form it came in uh, as a Dodgers fan I just wanted to win one so um just just to have that off our backs moving into the seasons that we can now you know fully enjoy because we're not so worried about winning one yeah and I do think that they will have I think that um it's really hard to repeat it's so hard uh, mentally physically we've seen teams win and then play like crap the next year um like the cubs or the nationals this year to a certain extent the astros have been were a team that were back you know, they, they went back you know to the world series the, the following year or not the world series but two years later they were back in the world series um so it but it's really hard to do that and I, but i think that there will be um a sense of motivation this year for the Dodgers not to prove that they earned it because they definitely earned it but because it is going to be a different season and I do think um you know they'll want to do it in front of fans I think it'll be um I think they're going to be right back in it next year I don't know if they'll they'll win but I think they'll be right back oh um, definitely they were, and it will be it will be different um I don't think it was any easier for them to win this year at all I think it was psychologically and emotionally I mean these guys are in their 20s and 30s most of them are pretty young and they're used to being around their friends all the time, you know, going out. Um, even the ones that don't like party huge and clubs or whatever, they're still like used to constantly being with people. And the fact that yeah. they were having to isolate in their hotel rooms all the time or isolate in their apartments all the time because of the stakes, you know, of catching COVID and they didn't want their season to be derailed. I mean, they were, a lot of them were probably experiencing profound loneliness for the first time in their lives. Right. I mean, they've never had to do that before. So, um, I think it was super hard for them yeah. for them this year. And I'm, I'm really, I mean, it was really great they did. Yeah, definitely. And I think I, I always, uh, I'll always look back at this championship um, as some, as, as an incredible feat that they were able to accomplish because, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, it should, you know, it was a fake championship. It should, there should be an asterisk next to it. And my argument always is there should be an, if they're, if you're going to put one, if you're going to put an asterisk next to it, it should be to recognize how difficult this season was. So yeah, yeah I, I, oh, as Dodgers fans, we're always, we're always going to be proud of this championship because of the way sure. it was won. Now I, I want to talk to you about uh, Clayton Kershaw because he yeah. has been the sort of constant uh, Kenley Jansen as well, but Clayton Kershaw has been, you know, 
sort of a constant throughout all of these teams. He was there, you know, uh, up through the end of uh, the McCourt era and now into uh, the Guggenheim era of Dodger baseball. And you got to, you know, kind of get to know him uh, a little bit uh, for for your book. You interviewed him pretty extensively. And the one the one thing that I that uh, that people always knock Kershaw for is his, uh, you know, what he does in the playoffs. And it's sort of this playoff Kershaw thing. And it bothers me uh, because I don't think people really understand what has gone into it. And 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 actually his his ERA is not something you should be looking at in terms of measuring him as a playoff pitcher because of all the runners that have scored after yeah. he left the game. Um, yeah. But but then there's another point of it, too, where it, it was like, it, you know, as much as I've knocked, you know, Don Mattingly over the years and, and you know, exa- you know, yeah. I, I've, I've never <laughs> been never been a fan of Donnie baseball, but. He almost his hand was forced. I felt in a lot of these playoff series with Kershaw to have to rely on him because the Dodgers didn't get the extra starter that they needed, yeah. and they, you know, like you mentioned in your book, McCourt killed a couple of deals that would have gotten them CC Sabathia or Cliff Lee, and you put yeah. those pitchers on the roster, and maybe maybe it turns out differently. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I do think that's fair. I mean, on the one hand you know, he is the best pitcher of a generation, so he should be held to a, a different standard. I mean, because he's the GOAT, like LeBron or, or um, you know, Michael Jordan or, or Kobe Bryant. Like, he, you know, you don't want to hear it. You would say, like, no, you're going to go out there and you're going to play every single minute and you're going you're gonna to carry this team no matter what against the best teams. And if you fail, you fail. Um, but on the other hand, it's like none of the pitchers – he was asked to do things that, that – pitchers don't get asked to do for a very good reason, like start on short rest or relieve. Um, they just aren't as good doing that. And when you see like Hall of Fame pitchers like Justin Verlander try to do it, they're not good because yeah. it's hard. Your body isn't, and it's not because you're mentally weak and it's not because you you know you choke in the big moments or whatever, you get too emotional or too anxious. It's because your body isn't fully recovered from the last start yet. So you're just not, you're just not there. And it's been so frustrating because people don't, they just show the ERA or whatever, and they don't have the context for that, which is like, you know, when Madison Bumgarner did that, had that dominant 2014 postseason, he never had to start on short rest once. And he only relieved once on short rest from the bullpen. And that was the last game, game seven of the world series, which obviously I'm not taking anything away from him. He was brilliant, but the giants started, you know, uh, Brian Vogelsong and Barry Zeter and or Barry Zeter, Barry Zito and Matt Cain and Tim Lincecum and those guys, they had like three other guys always to go with him. They didn't try to force him onto three, three days rest and put him in a position to succeed. And obviously he still had to do that, but they, the team was helping him be his best self. And this was the first season. I mean, my God, how many years has Kershaw been a Dodger? 12, 13. This was the first postseason where he was never asked to start on short rest or to relieve. Right. And he had his best postseason. And he's 32 years old now. I remember a lot of miles, you know, on that on that arm. So it just it's just it didn't seem like a coincidence to me that this was his best postseason when he was just asked to be himself. He was exactly. not asked to to run a marathon and then immediately run another marathon. It was like he just they just had him do his best thing, his best event, you know. Um, and which was start every, every fifth day. And he was great. And the games that he didn't have it, he still managed to get through it. You know, mm-hmm. he still managed to go six innings and give up two runs or three runs. Like he still held it together. There were no implosions. There were no meltdowns. And, 
you know, they resisted the urge to bring him in in relief when they were talking about it. I mean, everyone Oof. was just like, don't do it. Yeah. Why would you do it? It's not fair to him because he always wants the ball. And I think for you and I and for other people who follow this team, you know, that was the most crushing part of it all was that it was like he was his own worst enemy because he would never say, you know, my arm, it's not, it doesn't, it's my arm hurts today or it's not, doesn't feel good coming out of my hand or I don't know, I'm not getting the same crisp action on my slider. He would just say, yep, I'll, I'll go, I'll take the ball. And that's what your star always does, right? I mean, LeBron's never going to say in the playoffs, he's never going to be like, uh, you know, I can't feel my foot. You know, he's just going to go out there and play, right? Right. And so for us, just like knowing how badly he wanted it and knowing that, you know, that actually, that actually hurt him the most in the end um, was just so heartbreaking. It just was so heartbreaking. But now it's over. He has a ring. Everybody can shut up. I mean, if Corey Seager hadn't gone off like that, he would have been the MVP. I mean, he won two World Series games, which is all anybody cares about is victories. So, I mean – He's everybody can just shut up now. It's great. <laughs> right. And and as heartbreaking as it has been for Kershaw for the past 12, 13 seasons, I'm sure you had your own feelings um, watching the final out and the, and the camera cuts to Kershaw in the bullpen is just this huge sigh of relief. I think everybody can relate. I mean, there's not a single person on earth who was good at everything or who, who has everything figured out, right? The people who seem to have their careers figured out, maybe have maybe struggle in their personal lives. Or the people who, you know, have great relationships in their personal life, maybe are kind of at sea in their career or whatever. It just nobody seems to have everything down perfect, right? And to see him struggle and then finally like climb that mountain and just and it's like he to to see him realize the stream in that moment, I mean it definitely was inspiring for me and you know made me feel like you know, there are going to be things that all of us struggle with and feel like we have this mental block or maybe it's never going to happen for us. And then it does. And it's like, once it does, the look of relief on his face, it was like all of that, all those years of struggle and frustration and heartbreak were just over in an instant. It was like, he, it was like, it's done. It's a dream realized. None of the before matters because he has World Series champion next to his name. that will not be brought up when he's nominated for the Hall of Fame. They won't say, well, the guy never, nope, he did it done mm -hmm. so it's yep. like it's like all the and it almost makes it sweeter you know like because he knew failure and then he won and that's way more relatable for the rest of us mortals than somebody who always wins at every level level and never you know falls on their face yeah i mean that's one of the reasons why i love baseball because it's so you can you can relate it so well to normal life and normal guys and the guys that are on the field or, you know, in a lot of ways look like us and, you know, we can kind of, uh, relate to them on some level. Um, so in, in, in the book, you, you obviously cover the first couple of years of the new ownership and it took them, you know, uh, at least eight seasons or whatever it was, um, to finally win a world series. Do you feel like, or I guess my question is, what would, what did you think was different from when they first started uh, with this team versus where they are now? I mean, in terms of yeah. like, obviously the rosters are, are, are a lot different, sure. but in terms of like the uh, the culture of the team and, and just the whole vibe. Yeah, I mean, I think that they were, it was pretty admirable how that when they came in, you know, they, they wanted to see things, them, evaluate people themselves before, before they just fired everyone. Like they wanted to see, Don Mattingly do the do his job. They wanted to see Ned Colletti do his job. They wanted to see all those people in their positions before they made um, decisions. Um, but you know, ultimately, that that delayed the the process um, in getting in getting the way they wanted to go. Uh, I, I mean, it just 
it almost feels like, and the Mets just did this, they just fired everyone because they want to bring in their own people and they want to start from scratch. And, and I, I almost feel like that, even though you run the risk of firing good people when you, when you buy a team like that, it almost feels, unless the team has been winning and is in a great place, it almost feels like you probably should clean house just because you're like, I just spent $2 billion on a team. I'm going to get my own people in here that I pick, that I work with, that I'm responsible for hiring. So then I, you know, and, and that definitely delayed it. I mean, I don't know if Friedman would have, would have come right away. I don't know if that they were just kind of waiting for him. It seemed that way. It seemed like they kind of had their eye on him for a little while. Like they kind of had their eye on Joe Madden as well. Um, I remember a couple of them even asked me and they were just at kind of, kind of like doing little, like just asking people, you know, who, who would be your dream hire? Who would, and I'm sure everyone said Andrew Friedman, right? Oh, um, yeah. He was known for taking the Rays to, I mean, having the Rays compete in the AL East against the Yankees and the Red Sox year in and year out with a fraction of the payroll. I mean, it was, it was really smart. Now that was the era when there were not, there were only a couple of really smart GMs, like where you could actually, really fleece someone in a trade now it's not that easy anymore because now everybody has a front office full of nerds there's there's nobody there's no front office that doesn't have analytics anymore they can't find a guy um like ben zobrist for the rays or you know max muncie or those kind of those little diamonds in the rough that um you can well, find i think, I, I think what uh, sorry to interrupt, but I just yeah. like I just think that uh, what Theo Epstein did with the Cubs and when he did with the Red Sox, it sort of proved that like these bigger market teams that have a that have a ton of money don't have to go out and be like the New York Yankees yeah. and spend all of this money on free agents. They can actually operate like a small market team and get good talent and yeah. and find guys like Max Muncy. And I I love the way that Andrew Freeman has gone about that and he's not given up on future talent as well. No, you're absolutely right. I think there was a little bit of concern and I was definitely in that camp. I mean, I think Freeman is, is really good at his job. So it's hard for me to really be critical of him. I was a little bit concerned um, that the ownership seemed a little strange that they weren't that they weren't getting any of those big free agents like they didn't get Garrett Cole they they didn't get Bryce Harper or, or Manny Machado or, or there were a bunch of free agents that came up that they just sort of were eh, iffy on like they were offering big money but short deals and they were they were coming in second or third or kind of like not in the not in the running and I was a little bit concerned that they were that the owners weren't we're like, well, we, we haven't given out a hundred million Friedman had never given out a hundred million dollar contract before Mookie bets. So and they were a little mm -hmm. bit like, look at us, we're making the world series. And you know, two, two out of the last three years and we haven't given out a hundred million dollar contract and we probably don't, I mean, we, you know, we probably don't need to do that um, to succeed. And so I was a little concerned. And then once they traded for bets and it was clear all along, that they had probably played this. They, they probably asked Friedman the same question they asked me back when, you know, when they were kind of asking everybody who would be your dream GM and everybody asked about Andrew Friedman. They probably asked Friedman, you know, who would be your dream ownership, right? Who, who would be your dream player? And he's like, Mookie Betts, right? And, and it's like, well, if you trade for him and you, and you that, that's your guy, then we'll make it, we'll figure out a way to make it happen. And they did. And that to me was like, wow, they played that so perfectly to, to not just get caught up in, in a free agent bidding war, but to, to pick their dream, right? Their dream player and then go out and get them and then not have to bid against anybody for him. You'll be able to lock them up. 
Um, and obviously they still gave him a lot of money in a pandemic. So that was, they didn't under, I mean, Mookie Betts looked like he was underpaid this year, but they didn't, wasn't like they were able to get a crazy good deal. Um, they still rewarded him. It was not like he's here against his volition because he's stuck, but that was just such a baller move. And, um, yeah. and it, it made, again, it made Luke, like it made all the other free. I mean, he looks like the best player way better than any of the other guys that were available. So that to me was like, wow, this team is, I mean, they're just going to develop, keep on relentlessly developing this talent. And then when like a, when a generational player comes along, they're just going to write a blank check and, yeah. and sign them. And that's like, I don't know how you beat that. Yeah. I don't know how you beat it. And, and to me, what was interesting because I, like when you, you know, you were thinking about the off season, right? Where they, they didn't get Machado. They didn't get Rendon. They never got yeah. Bryce Harper and all of these people. And I remember thinking like, Friedman has changed my entire perspective on what I want on my team. And, and for me, I wasn't actually disappointed that we lost out on Garrett Cole or that we lost out on Rendon. My mind was thinking like, that's just too much money for, yeah. for their age, for their talent. It's just too much money. But then when you get a guy like Mookie Betts or, uh, or right. Mike Trout, for example, once right. in a generation player, I wouldn't even put Bryce Harper in that category. Yeah. But you get these sort of once in a generation players and you are, and he was essentially able to fleece the Boston oh, yeah. Red Sox. I mean, no, no knock on Alex Verdugo, but he's no, no. Mookie Betts. No. Um, so that to me was just like you were saying, such a baller move for him to, to, to recognize that. Whereas a few years ago and, you know, in the Ned Coletti era, you know, for looking at guys like Machado and we don't get them, I, I would be out of my, I'm, are you kidding Even me? Right, You're the yeah. Los Angeles Dodgers. You have all this right. money. What do you mean you can't get right. a guy like that? No, it's, it was, and, and, you know, it was unfortunate that we didn't have that, you know, reporters like us, that we didn't have locker room access this year. It was, it was just a weird season because I, you know, I really do wonder if Mookie, if his influence in the locker room was, was also the, was also an ingredient that they, that they missed. Um, You've got to have a, a, a baseball team. It can't come from a starting pitcher. It has to come from an error reliever. It has to come from an everyday player, like yep. a certain type of leadership. And Mookie strikes me as somebody who, you know, works his ass off, is the first one to the field and sets the example that way. Um, but isn't like a rah-rah like guy who's, who's full of it, you know, who's f full of shit and like, you know, whatever and annoying everybody right or like yeah. showing people up or being being whatever but somebody who will who's quiet but will speak up when the time when it's right and that commands us just to sort of respect and there's the leadership there and I just wonder um and we saw it with the day that they all voted not to play against the Giants because Mookie didn't want to play yep and we saw the you know Kershaw and Mookie and Kenley and and Dave Roberts um, standing there. I don't know. I, I don't know if we're just, I was kind of wondering where Justin Turner was, but maybe it just was too many people, but you know, we saw, but obviously he voted not to play as well. So we saw them standing there united and just, that just, that just didn't happen on teams in the past and yeah. not, not even over issues as sensitive as um, racial injustice, but just that kind of unity on, on anything just didn't really happen in the past. Um, yeah, and, and that was like, Whoa, this team is like on a mission. They don't want anything. Their star right fielder franchise player is is in a lot of pain right now, and they don't want anything 
to hurt him or hurt their season. And so they're just, they're like, they're not going to play. And that was like, whoa, they're on a mission. Like they really, really, really want to win this year. It's like, I was, I was, that was to me, was like definitely one of the defining moments of, you know, of this team for me was seeing that. I mean, of this last, you know, 20 years of me, you know, following this team or whatever was my whole life. Really. That was a defining moment for me of being like, there's urgency right now that they're going to win. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because while I don't think the window was closing for the way the franchise is uh, set up right now in terms of bets and all the young guys that are, you know, on the team or are coming through the system, but the window is definitely closing on guys like Kenley Jansen and Clayton Kershaw and Justin Turner. So I'm glad you brought that up because the one, the one thing that I had read about um, was that in the beginning of the season, Mookie Betts sort of came into the into spring training before it got shut down and essentially, you know, got got in the locker room and was like, all right, let's, you know, let's get this together. Let's play every game like it's game seven of the World Series. And he sort of rallied yeah. the guys around him as the new guy. And yeah. I'm not even I don't even think he, you know, had the extension of his contract at that point. Um, and to me, it was very uh, reminiscent of what happened in 1988 when you had Kirk Gibson coming to the clubhouse and he looked around and these guys were goofing off and he was like, okay guys, like let's, you know, let's get down the business. Let's cut the bullshit and let's, you know, go out and win a championship. And obviously those two teams are very different. The 88 Dodgers were scrappy. Nobody, you know, nobody thought that they could win. They were up against the Goliath Oakland A's and even the Mets too. Like they they weren't supposed to beat any of these guys. Whereas the Dodgers were sort of the, the cream of the crop, uh, you know, the, uh, the standard in MLB. So you had two different franchises, but I think the, the common denominator there is, is a guy like that. Like you were saying, yeah. there needs to be that guy in the clubhouse that says, Hey, you know, let's, you know, let's have fun playing baseball, but let, you know, let's focus in on our goal here. That was, there just was a, there was a sense of urgency of like, let's stop fucking around. Like, even if the window isn't closing, like even if this isn't our last chance, it's like, this has gone on long enough, right? This like making the playoffs and getting everybody excited and then falling short has gone on long enough. We're also yep. giving it, we're putting it out of it. We're putting everybody out of its, their misery this year. Like it stops now. There was a, there was a different vibe. And I remember feeling that way all through the season, like feeling like they're going to win it this year. And, and um, even though I, you know, obviously it's been through them losing the last seven years in excruciating, you know, fashion. And I remember when they went down to the Braves three to three to one, mm. it was almost confusing because I thought to myself, God, they're not playing that game five. There just was, there was no urgency. There was no resilience. It was like, what is going on? This is not the team that I, yeah, they can't, just, they can't go out like this. And I remember thinking like, okay, is someone going to say something like, because <laughs> Because I know, like, this is not, you know, the team that I, this doesn't seem like anybody has spoken up or said anything. Like, they just need to get fired up and do this. And then I guess they did, you know, uh, they were texting each other. And they started a text chain fired up. I think Kershaw said something like, all we got to do is win three games. We've done that, you know, so many times this year. That's it. Like, we just have to win tomorrow and then the next day and the next day. It's not that big of a deal. Like, don't get... Go, don't go into the tank mentally over this. And they just were like, they're like, we're still the best team in baseball. And they just, yep. and they showed it. They showed that resilience. And it was the same vibe that I saw when, you know, the four, when, when Kershaw and Mookie and Kenley and Roberts stood there in front of the 
in front of the Zoom to address the media about why they had all walked out of the Giants game. And it, it, it really, and a lot of people were like, oh, it's just like performative art, you know, what a performance woke, whatever. And I, I get it, like, oh, they're just, they're not really going to make a difference or whatever by, by, by sitting out tonight, they're going to play doubleheader tomorrow, like who cares? And I understand that, but it, it was really a moment of, I cannot explain it to somebody who hasn't been following this team, of unity, of backbone, of togetherness, of, of they looked pissed off, they looked you know, emotional. And it was like, it was a different kind of spark and fire that I'd ever seen from this team before. And that's what they showed when they came back from being down three to one. It was the same, like fight, like pissed off for greatness. You know, it was that same, that same like energy and fight. And, um, like we've got a good thing going and we're not going to let anything in our way. It was, it was awesome. And it was awesome to think about it, that they, it was the first time all year that they had seen adversity. I mean, on the field, obviously yep. with COVID and everything happening, there'd been plenty of adversity off the field, but you know, to see them do that, it really, nobody, it's really rare to come back from three, one, especially against a team as good as the Braves. Um, and we'll always remember that as well. Maybe even more than the world series about how close they were to blowing yeah. it. Um, yeah. That game that four was a little worrisome in the world series. That was yes. a disaster. Was- I had a, I had a text chain with a couple of my buddies and they were like, Oh, it's over. It's done. You know, we're, know. you know, and I'm like, listen, we came back from three, one. It's, it's only two, two, like, let's, you know, let's, that was let's so- just give this team a chance here. I watched it in disbelief and thought to myself, Oh my God, that's going to be played like the Buckner the Bill Buckner thing. Oh my God. The, yeah, the Brett Phillips moment. Yeah. Like, but the, the, like the fact that there were like four errors on that play and then a Rosarena fell and still oh, faced and still scored. I'm like, still that's going to be, and now like people, they'll show it, but it won't be, it won't be the same. Like it won't, people will kind of forget about it because it didn't win the, the race didn't win the world series. But yeah. If they won it, it would be like, Oh my God. It would be something that you and I think about for like the next twenty years. Like I know, you know, up, honestly, up until uh, up until the Dodgers won the World Series this year, I couldn't get out of my mind what happened in the twenty nineteen National League Division Series when uh, when Kershaw when when Roberts brought Kershaw back out there and he gave up two home runs back to back. They end up losing. You know, yeah. Joe Kelly gives up a grand slam to Howie Kendrick. Like I've not gotten those moments out of my mind, and the only yeah. way that can cleanse that is a world series win yeah it really in some ways like it kind of felt like like the way we've been feeling in this pandemic for the last you know nine months it kind of felt like the last you know eight postseasons for the dodgers were just one long postseason like <laughs> you know like hanley ramirez's rib getting broken in 2013 in the first at bat like 2014 uh you know matt adams homering off of uh Kershaw on three days rest and Kershaw losing three to two. And somehow he's like, you know, the worst person on earth. And then, you know, 2015 with the, with the, the forgetting to cover third base and 16. I mean, the Cubs are better, but like 17, obviously the Astros, Astros. you know, it was just like, it was like every year something awful happened and yeah. felt like groundhog day over and over and over again, like one long, you know, postseason. And now it's just like this, the slate's been wiped clean. I'm excited for a new narrative, right. To like, Me too. To not pile it on of like, oh, so-and-so is always sucked in the playoffs or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, no. However, you know, Cody Bellinger sucked in the playoffs. Then he then he hit the pennant-clenching home run in yeah. the year that he won the World Series. So who cares about what he's done in the playoffs before any of that, right? Se- yeah, and, and also his second 
game seven NLCS home run in his career. Yeah. So he really hasn't been that bad. Um, if he's coming Ziegler through in, in the playoffs and then this year he hit like, you know, like Babe Ruth, right? Yeah. So no one's ever going to remember that he struggled in his first, you know, three or four playoffs uh, years. No one's going to care. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of a beautiful thing about baseball. I mean, it's so hard to win, but then when you do, it's like, no one can ever tell you anything ever again because you have a ring. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so actually, that's a good segue. Uh, finally, I just wanted to ask you because, you know, kind of our, our theme on Meeting on the Mound is, you know, talking about why we love this game so much. And in and obviously it, it hurts us more than it doesn't. Um, yeah. So it's kind of uh, mystifying why we keep coming back for more. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on why you love this game and uh, where, where did it all start for you? It's a good question. Um, I think I just, uh, I got it. Somebody gave me, the year after the Dodgers won the World Series in 88, I was five and somebody gave me a, um, uh, in 1989, somebody gave me like a bag of, a Ziploc bag of baseball cards. And I was so blown. Like I, I was looking at them and it was like, I was just kind of learning how to read and, and numbers and colors and stuff. And I playing, I was playing, you know, little league. And um, I just, I was fascinated by all these guys and I'd line them up and it was kind of how I learned how to start like alphabetizing and I had organized them by position. And I just became like, I just thought it was so cool looking at the back of a baseball card and kind of understand, looking at it and kind of like how it told a story and kind of understanding like, oh, his numbers are higher here than in this year. So this year he was an all-star. Like, cause they had like bold years where someone was an all-star. And I just remember thinking like, like I just kind of learned a lot that way. And then I think for me, like going to Dodger stadium as a kid and, you know, listening to Vin Scully and getting a hot dog and seeing the beach balls and the wave and everything, like it was just so fun. Right. Like it was just like, and I remember it being something that all my friends could, everybody could do because it wasn't that expensive. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't, you know, like tickets to a Laker game, maybe where, where not everybody can afford to go or whatever else or a hockey game or an NFL game. It was just like, it was accessible. It was, you know, you could get tickets for like five bucks if you wanted. And it just felt like the perfect summertime activity. And I don't know, I just, over the years and then getting really in my, in my, 20s kind of after I graduated college and you know being lived in New York and I was a little bit homesick for LA even though I love New York and I just me it was just putting Vin on every night and you know it was just there was something about it and I think that's why you know Chick Chick Hearn had died and so it just wasn't the same listening by then so it just wasn't the same listening to Laker games but it was really Vin I think looking back on it now it's like why because I grew up like equal parts Laker and Dodger fan and then I sort of now I'm kind of agnostic about the Lakers. I really think it was Vin that kept me um, connected. You know, when I lived, when I didn't live in California. I didn't live, didn't move back until 2011. So it was, I would say it was him um, that kept my fandom alive. Um, but the game itself is just, it's just, just, it's just the worst, best game there is. I mean, you could have somebody like Brett Phillips be the hero. Uh, which I guess some people found inspiring. You know, if you're me, you're like, why, God, why? You know, why does this always happen to the Dodgers? Why, where is their Travis Ishikawa or their Brett Phillips or their <laughs> whoever, right? Like, how come Harley Kendrick hit a game-winning, series-winning Grand Slam? Uh, he was on the Dodgers and didn't do that when he was on the Dodgers. Like, all those right. questions in your head. Um, but something about it being every day, too, I think it's like, 
there's that constant, it's like a constant companion, you know, maybe you're driving to dinner back when we used to be able to go to dinner, you know, maybe you're driving to dinner and you, you catch the first inning and then, then you're leaving dinner later and you, and they're in the, the eighth or the nine, and you can get it. And it's like, there's just constant sort of like soundtrack to your life every day. And I just, um, I don't know. I just, something about that. What about you? What do you love about baseball? <laughs> hey, this is my show. Uh, <laughs> we wound up being in the same sections during like really intense playoff games. Like, you know, whether it's like down on the field behind home plate or whether it's like way up in the corner. Oh of the my middle. God. You and yeah. I have like, I was, I was shocked to see you up, all the way up yeah. there. Yeah. For game yeah. one of the 2017 yeah. world series. We're like in the farthest section you could be in. I'd give, I had better seat. It was so hot that day. Oh, and it was I had brutal. better seats in the shade, but I, I put my mom in them because like I, she, there was no way she could handle being in that direct sun. Yeah. Yeah. Turn around. There's Jake. And we're both like, what are you doing? Way up? Yeah. It was great. You know, it's funny because yeah. like the, the, the person, the, the reason why we know each other is because of Charlie Steiner and he was, yep. he was the one that actually helped get us those tickets. Um, yep. You know, at first I was like, thanks, Charlie. And then I got up there. I was like, thanks, Charlie. Like, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Well, that we uh, were in the, like the media seats is why we were up there. We were in like the, and of course to give the media like the, <laughs> the worst seats they could possibly give, but it was the world series. So I mean, yeah. we were both and, like, so excited to even that it was even happening, right? I know because it was yeah, it was it was the first World Series appearance since 1988, and and yeah. then it all came crashing down. And and I think, but imagine um, how great we felt after Game One of the World Series that year. We were like, oh my this god, is so easy. They're just going to cruise. Why do we think this was hard? Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. well, then yeah, then Game Two happened, and it was like, yeah. okay, uh, really what's bad. going on here? And I, I actually I was at Game Five of the uh, of the 2017 World Series. The 13 to 12. Well, I was in all the games, yeah. Oh, just, that was just the most brutal game, emotionally draining game I've ever been to. Then to find out what actually happened um, was just so, was just so frustrating. Um, I have a friend who um, a huge, was a huge Dodger fan. And after that and finding out everything, like she just, she can't even, she's still so mad about everything. She hasn't been back to a game. She can't, she's like, I felt like I found out there was no Santa Claus, you know, because yeah. she was so upset after that game. And then to find out that they were cheating, she's like, I don't even like the sport anymore. And she, <laughs> watched, she watched some of it on TV, but she's like, it's just not the same. Like, I'm, I'm too upset. I'm well, still too upset. That's that's the thing. It's like I, I can I can, you know, I'm totally behind her on that in, in a lot yeah. of in a lot of respects because you you know, they could turn a lot of people off with the way not only the fact that they cheated, okay, that's one thing, but then everything else that happened after how they handled it, they give the players immunity, they don't strip the title, there's no asterisk, there's no suspensions. Um it she just is like, Yeah, she felt like MLB just decides like who they want to win and then if it's not a big enough deal, like they're just, they don't care. They're not going to, you know, they were like, well, we don't want to deal with this. And so the Astros are still the champions. And she just felt like this is a dumb league. And like, I don't want to get emotionally involved yeah. because yeah. like it could just happen. It'll just happen again. If you know, somebody will figure out how to cheat and then whatever. But yeah. I understand. But a good, but good thing, but good thing Joe Kelly was punished for it. I'm happy about that. I know. I know. Well, Joe Kelly has the last laugh once again, because he won yep. another, he won another ring. Um, he got a mural in Echo Park. And he yep. is like legend for Dodger fans forever. So he's Always. living right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Molly, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate uh, the conversation. It's always great to talk to a lifelong Dodgers fan like myself. And I uh, hope you had a good time yeah. as well. Yeah, I had a great time, Jake. And, and good luck with everything. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks.